This week's class is on Parshas Balak, and we're going to be discussing a particular detail uh, associated with the story of Zimri ben Salu. He was the head of the prince, the leader of the tribe of Shimon. And this was at a time when the Midianite women were sent to seduce the uh, Jewish men in order to make them spiritually vulnerable so that the Midianites would hopefully be able to attack the Jewish people successfully. And um, it reached a point where um, Moshe was commanded by God to um, serve capital punishment to those who were in violation. Uh, And so the members of the tribe of Shimon who were uh, guilty came to their leader and said, defend us, do something. So their leader, Cosby, their leader Zimri ben Salo came and took a Midianite princess and brought her before Moshe and said, is this woman permissible for me to be with or prohibited? And if she's prohibited, who permitted your wife to you because Moshe's wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite woman. Moshe ran away from Egypt 40 years, um, many years earlier, um, uh, far more than 40 years earlier than this uh, point. And he um, ended up marrying, he, he ran away from Egypt to Midian, and he end, uh, ended up marrying Zipporah, the daughter of Yisro. Yisro was not Jewish at that time, and nor was, nor was his daughter. She was a Midianite woman. So Shimon came with a strong argument to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, our, our, our leader. So our sages tell us that he came and said, is she, is this uh, Midianite princess forbidden or permitted? And if she's uh, prohibited, which, which he knew she was prohibited, who permitted the, uh, the daughter of Yisro to you? And the uh, and and the uh, our sages tell us that Moshe forgot the law in that moment about what you do to someone who in front of you is going to be intimate with a Gentile woman. And Pinchas, his great nephew, who was the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, he remembered the law. Now this law. I'm going to mention, although this is not the topic of today's class, and I don't want to get um, caught up in it, but I also want to make sure you're clear about it. And that is, Pinchas, remember that the law is that when someone sees a man um, who is uh, being intimate with a a non-Jewish woman, which means a zealot has the right in that moment to exercise capital punishment. Now, I want to be clear that this is a very, very unusual and unique law in Judaism. In general, one is never allowed to take law into their own hands. Everything has to be brought to a court. This circumstance is very unique. And it says that if you're a zealot, then you can take the law into your own hands. I want to define what a zealot is because it's quite different from the zealotry that we're familiar with. It doesn't mean that someone is a fanatic and therefore they act fanatically. Fanatic people are generally dangerous people and very unhealthy. But over here it means that someone who is a zealot for the sake of God. That means that their, connect, that their relationship with God is so strong that when they see something, 
like this, that's such a strong violation of, of God's will, that they have an automatic reaction to do something about it now. Now, to be on that level, um, you, you and I probably never met someone on that level. Because generally speaking, when we get upset about something, even when it is for a some uh, because someone is is violating um, a, a Jewish law, it's for religious reasons. Generally speaking, our upsetness is dominated, and if not dominated, it's partially motivated by uh, some form of our own agenda and ego. Uh, for someone to be absolutely clear. For the sake of God, one needs to be a tzaddik. They want to be a righteous person. Pinchas happened to have been such a person. And we know that because of the way God reacted to his act. Uh, but So that's just to qualify this, this, this law. But the question that we want to address today and that the Rebbe addresses in this talk is, what is the answer um, to Zimri's uh, question? Zimri asked a good question. What permit, who permitted you to marry your wife, Sipor? She's also a Midianite woman. We, we don't find an answer to that question. So Rashi gives us an answer. And Rashi says a, a, a very simple answer. It's an answer that when I was learning this with my son, my son answered before I told him we got to what Rashi says. And that is that it was before the giving of the Torah. Moshe mar- married his wife Zipporah before the Torah was given and there were laws. So it's a whole different story than now, 40 years after the Torah was given, uh, where they are commanded that a Jew... Um, uh, most, uh, must marry a Jew. So the, the, there's, the, the answer to the question is actually quite simple. It's actually so simple that the Rabbi asks another question. Did Zimri not know this basic explanation? I mean, how did Zimri not know this? Of course Zimri knew this. This is it's quite obvious. So, so um, what then was Zimri's question? We, we, we have to assume that Zimri's question was not a question that, was, that had such a simple basic answer. And if there's a weakness to the answer that Rashi has given, that it was before the that Moshe married before the giving of the Torah, um, why doesn't if there's a weakness to that answer, why doesn't the, the Talmud clarify, explain to us that there's a weakness to that answer and uh, there's another answer? Now some say that Moshe, mm-hmm. when it says that Moshe forgot the law of how to resp- how to react to a man who's being intimate with a Gentile woman. Um, in the moment, um, some say that what he forgot was more than just how to react, but he forgot also the answer to Zimri's question of, of why he was permitted to marry his wife, Zipporah. Now, this is a very weak uh, explanation, because firstly, Rashi spells out precisely what Moshe forgot. He says that Moshe forgot the law of a Jew who is cohabiting with a Gentile. It doesn't say that he forgot why he was allowed to be married to his wife, Zipporah. And also, even if he did, even if Moshe did forget, can we assume that Zimri came in front of, there were, there were thousands of people standing there who was trying to make a major statement and prove his point. Can, can we assume that he came and he asked a question um, that he didn't know that Moshe would forget? And he couldn't rely on the fact that Moshe would forget such a simple answer. It's really a basic answer. So even if Moshe did forget, do you think Zimri would have come and asked such a simple question, which which would be so unlikely for Moshe to have forgotten the answer to? Clearly, he was asking a, a more powerful question than that. So another possibility is, is related to another law, which is very interesting. And that is that the Torah forbids a Kohen, 
that's uh, um, who are selected to serve in the temple from marrying certain people. One of the one of the people a coin is not allowed to marry a coin is not allowed to marry a divorcee. Um, that's um, one um, very well known. Uh, another person a coin is not allowed to marry is a convert. A coin is not allowed to marry a convert. And we learn this from a, a verse in the Torah in the in the book of Ayikra of Leviticus chapter twenty one verse seven, and in the Talmud discusses now what relevance does this have to Moshe? Here's something very interesting. The Talmud discusses that Moshe was a Kohen. And he was a Kohen, but his children did not have the status of Kohanim. That God gave him a unique status as a Kohen, but his children didn't get that status. So that's why Kahuna priesthood follows the lineage of Aaron, the high priest, Moshe's brother. But not Moshe, because Moshe himself was given the status of Kohen, but not his children. There's an, actually an argument in the Talmud. Another opinion says that actually Moshe was not a coin, but for seven days he was given the status of a coin, and that was during the Shiva Simeha Miluim, the seven days that he was initiating the construction of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan in the, in the desert. But regardless, one way or another, he had the status of coin either temporarily or, or permanently. And now we have a question. And perhaps this was Zimri's question. How was the daughter of Yisro permitted to Moshe? The daughter of Yisro was a convert. Her, she, she wasn't from a Jewish family. She converted. How could Moshe marry her if Moshe has the status of a coin? Now you may be wondering, well, all Jews were converts because all the Jews converted and became Jews when God gave us the Torah. So, that's, this is not a problematic question because all Jews are descendants of Abraham, of Avram Avinu. So we already had an element, a spiritual element to us that defined us as Jews. It formalized through a form of conversion when the Torah was given, but the conversion that the Jewish people went through was a different form of conversion than someone who was not Jewish and not a descendant of, of Avram Avinu, of Abraham, um, had to go through. And in fact, some commentators even say that the conversion that the Jewish people went through at Mount Sinai worked retroactively, where, where the actual conversion, it, it, it literally took place when the Torah was given. But then it put them into a status of going all the way back to their birth as if they were born as, as a Jew. So that's not an issue. The question, though, is Moshe marrying a woman who clearly was not from the uh, descendants of Avram. And it was clearly uh, not from this lineage of Avram, of the Jewish lineage. So according to the opinion that he was only a temporary coin, you can possibly say that he wasn't a, what we call a coin gummer, an absolute coin. He wasn't, you know, he just had temporary status, so it's not a problem. Maybe. It's a weak, it's a weak response. But, but still, the, according to the opinion that Moshe was a coin, by all means a coin, then how do we understand that he married Sipora? And this was Zimri's question. Now, possibly, um, the answer, the, the questions can actually answer each other. Zimri's question was uh, because Moshe was a coin. 
And if she's prohibited, why is why is Moshe would 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 a coin be why is a coin prohibited from marrying a gentile? Without getting into the to further clarification and explanation, I'm just going to say because she's a gentile, she was she was a gentile for a period of her life, and that would disqualify her from marrying a coin. So Zimri said, the, our first question was what was Zimri's question? So this was Zimri's question that you're telling me I cannot cohabit with this Midianite princess. Because she's a Gentile. Well, for the same reason, you shouldn't be allowed to be married to Zipporah because she was once a Gentile, and that's the issue of a coin marrying a, a, a convert. So if you can be married to Zipporah, I can be with her. That was his argument. Um, now, if this, um, if this was Zimri's question, what is the answer to his question? It's a good question. So Zimri is bringing up a good point, and what's the answer? So the Talmud tells us that there were three things. So we're going to introduce a possible answer to Zimri's question, but we're going to see that this answer is not a, uh, a, a, a satisfying answer, and then we'll get to the actual explanation. So the, 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 uh, the potential explanation is that the Talmud tells us that there are three things that Moshe did on his own by, based on his own judgment. I mean, he made a judgment that this is the right thing to do, and he did it. And the Talmud says that these three things that he did, God agreed with him. His judgment was good. He made a, he made a smart choice. One of them, possibly, um, was, maybe one of them was, that he separated from his wife. Now, you remember, this This goes back to the um, to the previous Torah portion, where, where um, Torah portions, a few portions back, where uh, Moshe had separated from his wife. And Rashi actually says that, that he divorced his wife. And he, and he did this. Um, we know this because when Moshe bestowed his prophetic uh, spirit onto the 70 elders to expand the leadership beyond themselves to get assistance with, um, with carrying the Jewish people, two of the, these individuals, Elder and the Medo, started saying prophecy amongst the Jewish people. And they were saying, uh, um, uh, amongst, and after they said prophecy, um, Moshe's wife, Zipporah, or, or, or ex-wife, Zipporah, said, oh, woe is to these two men who are saying prophecy. Woe is to their wives. And that's when Miriam, Moshe's sister, heard, and she didn't know what she was talking about. She said, what's the problem? Uh, and, and she said that my, my husband separated from me because he had to stay in a state of purity in order to be able to receive divine, uh, uh, divine communication. And therefore, he stopped uh, being intimate with her, or according to Rashi, actually divorced her. So, um, this was possibly one of the three things that Moshe decided to do on his own. And it was a secret. And, um, and, God, and God agreed. And so that's the reason why Moshe didn't answer Zimri when Zimri said, how could you be married to Zipporah? Now, he didn't want to say, I'm no longer married to Zipporah. Because this was a secret and private matter. In fact, he didn't tell anybody. So that's the reason why he didn't answer. Um, and we know that it was a secret because Miriam only found out when Zipporah slipped, when his wife, Moshe's wife, slipped in a moment and said something. But this explanation is not a sound explanation um, because the fact was that he separated not because... Um, she was a convert and he was a coin, so he had to separate. 
Uh, on that matter, he was married to her. The only reason why he separated from her was because he was a prophet. And in fact, we also know that God commanded him to separate. It wasn't something he did on his own. We know that God instructed him to. So we're back to the question of if this is Zimri's question, if this was Zimri's question, who permitted Sipporah to you because she's a, she used to be a Gentile and therefore she's a convert and you're a Kohen and on the same grounds that you are forbidden to her because she was once a Gentile. Um, but you're living with her. I should be permitted to be with um, this woman, Cosby Bastur, this uh, Midianite princess. So the explanation is from a Mishnah. There's a Mishnah, a Mishnah that teaches us that a Kohen, what happens if a Kohen is betrothed to a widow? Betrothal is a, is a, is a, 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 um, a legal form of engagement, which we call betrothal because it's more than just an engagement as we know it in our society. It's a, it's a commitment a man and woman make, which if they, were to, if they were to want to break that commitment they made to each other, they would actually need a divorce, even though they're not married yet, they're just betrothed. So if a coin is betrothed to a widow, and then, which is permissible, the only coin that's not allowed to marry a widow is a coin gadol. A, a coin is allowed to marry a widow, he's just not allowed to marry a divorcee, or a convert, or a chalutza, which is another status. So if a coin marries a, uh, is betrothed to a widow, and then they appoint him as Kohen Gadol during his betrothal. They, the Kohen Gadol passes away. They want to, they appoint him as a new Kohen Gadol. Can he marry her? And the answer is, being that the betrothal was in a permissible manner, therefore they can stay together and he can marry her, which is a good trivia question. How is it possible for a Kohen Gadol to be married to a widow? Try that on someone. Um, so surely... Um, when Moshe married Tzipporah, they married under permissible terms because the Jews, uh, God gave the, 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 um, the Jewish people the Torah, they converted. And some time later, God appointed him as a Kohen. But it was shortly after um, the conversion that they all made and the, and the, uh, and the marriage. Not only were they betrothed, they were already married. So if someone who's betrothed to a widow can then take on the status of Kohen Gadol uh, and get married, then surely if they're already married, right, and then the one's given the status of Kohen Gadol, surely that would be fine. Because um, they, they had to remarry after the Torah to have a proper marriage according to Torah law, which that was given to them only once the Torah was given. And surely that happened before becoming a Kohen. And even, even further, we find an interesting thing, that there were certain laws that the Jewish people observed even before the Torah was given. And um, the Torah tells us in the beginning of the book of uh, Shemos, of Exodus, it says, um, A man from the house of Levi went. Who was this man from the house of Levi? He was Amram, who was Moshe's father. And he took his wife, um, who he was previously married to and separated from because of the decree of Pharaoh to kill all the firstborns, he came and he remarried her. And this uses the word Vayikach. The word Vayikach, he took, that is the language the Torah uses for marriage. Um, he made Elokuchin, we would call it in Talmudic language. Um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and we learn from that that Amram, Moshe's father, was already observing the laws of marriage. And that the Jewish people were observing the laws of marriage from that time. Surely Moshe, who was the son of Amram, also um, was um, got married even before the Torah, according to halachic uh, standards. 
So this, now that we have this understanding, we can we can answer the our two questions. Our first question was what's Zimri's what was Zimri's question, which we sort of answered already. And our second question was why Moshe didn't give an answer. Now, Zimri's question um, was um, was how can Moshe um, marry someone who converted? And we learn, um, we, we, we learn that if through oral law, which is documented in the Talmud, which is a documentation of the oral law, because when God gave the Torah to Moshe, he gave him the written law, which is the five books of Moses, which are written down, and then it continues into the prophets later on. But it's the five books of Moses. And then the, the oral law was written down in the form of Mishnah and Talmud um, uh, many, many, many years later as uh, the Jewish people started forgetting it. Now, Zimri did not accept a law that Moshe taught the Jewish people orally that we learn from the word Vayikachisha, that, that, that Moshe can remain married to Tzipporah because he married her under fine terms and only later became a Kohen Gadol. And therefore, Zimri was of the convenient opinion, it was convenient for him in that moment, to, to defy and go and say, I don't accept the oral teaching you gave us, which of course he got from God, Moshe got from God, uh, that Moshe is now required to divorce his wife, as we just learned, because they were already pre-married before his appointment as a Kohen Gadol. So now we understand Zimri's question. Zimri's question was, how can you be married to Zipporah? Well, what's the question? We have an oral teaching that I was married before Right? That would be the response. No one gave a response, but that would be the response that Moshe was married to Zipporah before his appointment was going to Gadol. But Zimri didn't accept that. This is a very important uh, detail in understanding Zimri's perspective here. And that helped, because this helps us understand why Moshe didn't respond. Moshe didn't answer because there is a law. There's a halacha in Shulchan Archa, a law in the court of Jewish law. That a Talmud Chacham, um, who's partial to a case, which means that he is somehow attached to the case that's brought before him, isn't believed to say that I received this teaching from my teachers, or orally, I, I received a tradition that this is the law. Why? Because he's partial. Whenever someone's partial, you can't, there, there's, a, there's an agenda and a person can never have full clarity when, when there's partiality. So, so Moshe has or, an oral law, which was given to him by God that says that he's allowed to be married to Zipporah because he was only appointed as Kohen Gadol after he became as, as high priest, after he married Zipporah. But he can't bring up that law because he's partial. Because Zimri is attacking him personally. He's attacking, how can you be married to Zipporah? And therefore, Moshe was quiet. Which is, um, and, and it's the same reason, this, this, for this very same reason, you may recall a previous incident where, the, where Korach attacked uh, Moshe and his leadership and said, how, why are you the leader of the Jewish people? Aren't all Jewish people equal? And why did you appoint Aaron as a high priest? That whole story. And at that time, the, the, the Midrash tells us that Korach brought up some other arguments to weaken Moshe's position. He asked Moshe, if there's a house full of Jewish books, do you need to put a mezuzah on it? And when Moshe said, of course, the, uh, Korach laughed and said, the whole house is filled with the word of God and you're going to put the word of God on the doorpost. 
And then he asked another question about, we know that there is a, when we wear tzitzis, one of the uh, eight strings needs to be a, um, a, a, a tcheles, the color tcheles. And um, he says, what happens if the entire garment is tcheles? Does one of the strings need to be, need to be tcheles? And Moshe said, of course. And he laughed, he said, the whole garment's tcheles. Why would one string need to be tcheles? What's that going to add? Now, Moshe doesn't answer these two questions. Interesting. Why doesn't Moshe answer these two questions? Because Korach was attacking him personally. So his response in these cases, he would be partial. And therefore, it was an attack on him. Therefore, he couldn't, he couldn't respond. And all of this teaches us a very powerful lesson the Rebbe tells us. The lesson is that we shouldn't always rush to answer someone's question. Why not? You f- we first need to understand why someone is asking the question that they're asking. Is their question coming from a genuine place or is their question coming from a cynical place? Because if the question is coming from a cynical place, if it's coming from a place that's not, as we say, L'Shem Shamayim for the sake of heaven, then we are supposed to learn from Moshe some, that um, simply to be quiet. Because Moshe identified, in addition, of course, legally, legally to the fact that he was partial, but Moshe also identified that it was clear that Zimri had an agenda here. He wanted to be with this woman. And therefore his agenda was to, 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 to insist that this thing is permissible. And we all know we've had uh, arguments with people or discussions with people where we know that the agenda for the person is so strong that nothing we tell them will actually make a difference. When someone approaches us for the sake of, you see King Solomon writes two verses, one after the other in the book of, of Mishle. In, in one Pasuk, one verse he writes, Altan ksil bivaltai. Don't respond to a fool in his foolishness. And Meshleim HaMalach wrote that in regards to someone who has an agenda. Someone has an agenda and you know that their question is not really to get an answer, but it's to, it's to prove a point on, or, or to undermine it, which we call sometimes a question which is really a statement. Just be quiet. Don't respond to a fool in his foolishness. But in the very next verse, Meshleim HaMalach writes something else. He says, Aneich Respond to a fool in his foolishness. That's talking about someone who may be foolish in his question, but he's genuine. He wants to know for the sake of heaven. He wants to know what the right thing to do is. Um, now, okay, so if someone is not going to respond to the question, what do you do? So this is also very important to know. Rather than answer the person, a person should stand with a strength which is higher than reasoning, higher than understanding. There's a strength that we have within us which is deeper than the level of, uh, uh, you know, of debating and explaining and understanding. It's when a person has, it makes a commitment and they have a conviction and nothing will move them from that conviction. They are absolutely committed to the position they are in. Of course, we do that only when we know something is right, but then the strength that we have as we'll explain, is so strong, it's stronger than a reason. Because anything, any strength, that any, any position someone stands in that is only backed by reasoning is only as good as the reason that they have. But the moment a person says, I know this to be true and therefore I stand in this absolutely, there is no way you can reason with that person. And essentially what you do is you stand facing this person who is not being reasonable in a foolish way, but you stand, you stand with them in a conviction of your space, but from a space of holiness, not a, not a space of, of foolishness. And this is very true in our own personal inner battle. 
when we have an inner battle with our Yetzirah, our evil inclination, which we all have all the time, right? Very often what we need to do is exactly this. And this is exactly, by the way, what Pinchas did in reaction to Zimri. He immediately acted with a zealousness. Zealousness is an act which is not rational. Most people who act, who are not acting rational are acting irrationally. But in rare instances, and, uh, and sometimes not so rare instances, when we are aligned with what is true, then we act super, uh, super irrationally. We rise above our rationalization. It's not irrational, it's super rational. And that's what Pinchas did. And that's what we need to do with our evil inclination. Sometimes when our evil inclination comes in reasons with us, and those reasons are compelling. In fact, sometimes we fall for them. We have to tell our evil inclination, you're an evil inclination, you have an agenda to bring me down, to take me away from holiness, from living out of my higher self, from being able to actualize everything God invested in me, and I will not be a part of this. I will stand with conviction in this determination to do it this way, and I'm not going to listen to any of your reasons. That is a way of acting super rationally. And this is very, um, this is very timely because the portion of Balak is, is always read within the vicinity of the great Hasidic holiday of Yud Beis and Yud Gimel Tamas, the day that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was finally released from the, um, uh, from the uh, communist regime and was able to leave the country and his life was saved. And his conduct was the same conduct as Pinchas, Bekanoi Eskinasi, that he avenged with a zealousness um, for God. Um, despite the fact that there was every reason, even according to Jewish law, that the Friedrich Rebbe should not have been doing what he was doing. Because according to Jewish law, one does not need to give up their life. Uh, there's no obligation of self-sacrifice. Every step of the way that he went to sacrifice for, for so many different things, he could have done what the rest of religious Jewry in Russia did. They ran out of the country. But the previous Rebbe said, who's going to take care of all of the Jews who are remaining in the country? I'm going to stay here and I am going to, I am with God. And therefore, I will act super irrationally in, 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 um, for, for God. And while one is not obligated according to halacha to do that, if someone is in that disposition, spiritually, as the Friedrich Rebbe clearly was, because he did it, then that is a very holy thing to do. And he did it purely for the sake of God. How do you know? I mean, it's for anyone that knows the Friedrich Rebbe, of course knows. But when someone's sacrificing their life and literally, literally was tortured and almost killed, because of it, it's clear that he was doing this purely and only for God. And self-sacrifice can be none, the Rebbe points out at the end of the talk, in one of two ways. One way is not through the Nasi, not through the, the leader of the Jewish people, not through Moshe. Uh, as in the case of Zimri, it was Pinchas who was the one who acted with, with zealotry. And Pinchas did it with an act of what we call gevura, of, uh, of judgment, of severity, of strength. Uh, that's how Pinchas acted. But there's another way that someone can also act with self-sacrifice. And that's the way the Friedrich Rebbe did. And that is, he was the Nasi, the, the leader of the Jewish people. So it was through him himself, the leader himself who did it. But he did it with chesed, with kindness. Um, he, his opposition to, um, um, to communism and his way of promoting Yiddishkeit was with chesed, was with kindness. And in fact, we know this because the Friedrich Rebbe, when, when, um, when his father passed on the mantle of the Nisius of the leadership uh, to his son, so the Friedrich Rebbe asked his father, the Rebbe Rashab, for a bracha that it should be bechesed uverachamim, with kindness and with compassion. Uh, because, this, because even such strength 
can be done as the as as, as Shlema Hamelach King Solomon writes, Toiv Ayin Hu Yevirach, with a good eye, with a, in a favorable way, with a desire for only good, not to bring out any harshness, but only to do, to do something which is good. And the Rebbe even uh, even points out in, in in the footnote that that Pinchas also arguably was doing it out of a place of kindness, which is. The, the way I would prefer to, uh, to to understand it. Sometimes the greatest forms of kindness show up in acts of uh, uh, of strictness or, or or of judgment or of strength. But as as Altrab explains in Tanya, sometimes the greatest forms of kindness are done that way. And and uh, what Pinchas ultimately did was he stopped a, a terrible travesty that was taking place amongst the Jewish people, and that was an act of kindness. Um, the, what we, what we, of course, can learn from all of this is to learn from the ways of the Friedrich Rebbe as we are going to celebrate uh, the Day of Liberation for the Friedrich Rebbe on the 12th and 13th day of Thomas by uh, reminding ourselves that we can always override all of those uh, silly, foolish, irrational thoughts that our evil inclination puts within us about the things we can do and uh, that we must do and the things that we can't do, we're not able to do, that we shouldn't do, and to rise above that with a toikif, a which means with a strength, an inner conviction that comes from our divine self, which is deeper than any reasoning, to be aligned with the purpose that God put us on this world. Thank you for joining. and looking forward to uh, spending some time together next week.